You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 145, The Winter War, Part 3, The Attack Begins. This week, a big thank you goes out to Renee, Justin, and Leonard for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. Find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. When the Soviet invasion of Finland started, it would begin all along the border, which due to geography meant that there were multiple unrelated offensives. And what was waiting for all of these offensives was something of a shock. Soviet leaders believed that the fighting might be violent, but it would be quick, and the Finnish defenses would rapidly fall apart. But what they found was a very motivated and highly skilled enemy, which was full of what in the Finnish language might be called sisu, which does not directly translate into English, but I like the translation of the word into something like guts or grit. The Finns would not be lacking in sisu, and they would show it in their early defenses. This episode will cover the early actions of the war before ending on some, let's call it interesting political developments. The first major move of the war would come in the form of Soviet air raids. At just before 9.30 a.m. on the last day of November, the first bombing raid would arrive over Helsinki. The first wave of Soviet bombers were not over the city to drop a bunch of bombs, though, but instead to drop propaganda leaflets. The contents of these leaflets were not always the same from leaflet to leaflet, but here is an example of one of them. Quote, To the Finnish people, the dastardly provocation of the military clique in Finland has aroused anger in our country and in the Red Army. Our patience is utterly exhausted. We are compelled to take up arms, but we are not waging war against the Finnish people, but against the government of Kahander and Erko, who oppress the Finnish people and have provoked this war. We come to Finland not as conquerors, but as liberators of the Finnish people from the oppression of the capitalists and the landlords. Therefore, let us not fight each other, but end the war and turn our weapons against our common enemies and against the government of Kander, Erko, Tanner, Mannerheim, and others. End quote. Clearly, in, with those words, the leaflets were designed to appeal to the groups in Finland that were not loyal and weren't huge fans of the government a group that the Soviet leaders believed was large enough to make a difference in the war. It wouldn't be. About an hour later, the next wave of bombers arrived, and the nine SB-2 medium bombers of this wave were carrying more explosive cargo. 
they would target the Helsinki railway station, which was located in the middle of Helsinki, and they would not hit it. And the railway stations are not small targets, but they somehow still did not hit it. And instead, they dropped most of their bombs on the large public square near the station, which would result in 40 civilian deaths. The bombers then spread out around the city and dropped some incendiary bombs almost at random with the goal of starting fires, which they were able to do. Then the city's firefighters would have to spend a good amount of time over the rest of the day putting out the resulting fires. Then another raid would arrive at 2.30pm, this time with 15 bombers that would just drop their bomb loads kind of just around the city, wherever they were, resulting in 50 more civilian casualties. This would be the final bombing raid over the city on the first day, with a one-day total of about 200 people being killed in Helsinki. At the border, the first Soviet attacks would take place north of Lake Ladoga. In this area, Mannerheim and the Finnish military had to make assumptions about Soviet intentions. There were not enough Finnish soldiers to defend the entire length of the border regions, but they would also probably not need to, because it seemed likely that the Red Army would heavily focus its efforts to the south of Lake Ladoga. But it did seem likely that the Red Army would attack directly north of the lake in an effort to outflank the Mannerheim line. If you remember our conversation last episode, this is exactly what the Soviets planned to do. This type of attack posed a serious risk for the Finns because the geography in this region was not as impassable as it was further north, and there were also a limited number of Finnish troops available north of the lake. The biggest area of threat were the two major roads that ran from the border to interior Finland, and it would be on these roads that the Finnish defense would be focused. Instead of focusing too much of their efforts near the border, though, the plan that was developed by the Finns was to allow the Soviets to advance along these roads until they reached a series of prepared defenses. Then, once they reached those defenses, the Finnish army would launch some counterattacks moving from the north to the south against the Soviet right flank. If everything went well, this would cut off the forward Soviet troops and quickly create a supply crisis for their forward elements. This was good, in theory. But the Soviets only partially did what was expected of them. They did launch an attack north of Lake Ladoga, but they brought far more men than expected, with five full divisions, when the Finns were only expecting them to bring three. They also sent two divisions even further north, which was a serious problem because the Finns had not placed any large elements in that area, as they had expected nothing more than maybe some reconnaissance patrols. This meant that instead of preparing for a flank attack on the advancing Soviets, the Finns had to instead move greater strength further north, and part of that strength were the troops that were going to be used in that counterattack. It was a worrying opening for the long-term abilities of the Finnish army to defend against the Soviet attack in this area north of Lake Ladoga. Further to the north, in the vast distances of northern Finland, the Red Army would send eight divisions which were supported by armor and artillery. This was far more than the Finns were planning for and would be a serious problem, which would force them to shift some reserves further north. In the far north, the 104th Division of the Red Army would attack Pitsamo from both the land and the sea, easily overpowering the small unit of Finnish defenders. Then, working our way from north to south, there were various Russian divisions moving towards a variety of Finnish population centers, like Rovaniemi, Suomosalmi, Kumo, and Lieksa. 
In each of these cases, a division of men, uh, although with a wide range of total manpower from 6,500 to 17,000, would move towards their objectives of these villages, towns, and cities. In terms of numbers, these troops would heavily outnumber the Finnish defenders, but they would be moving through unfamiliar and very dangerous territory. They would have some distance to move as well, with many of the objectives quite a long distance from the border, especially when you consider that movement would be slow along the underdeveloped roads, especially when you're talking about moving 17,000 men and all of their equipment and supplies on these roads. In the Gulf of Finland, there would be some early raids on some of the disputed islands, the ones that the Soviets had hoped they would just be able to get handed over to them through negotiations. The naval landing parties on these islands would encounter no resistance. There were no Finnish troops there because that just would have been a suicide mission. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. While fighting was occurring in the north, On the Karelian Isthmus, the Red Army was also advancing. It was on the Isthmus that General Meretskov had at his disposal 120,000 men, 1,000 tanks, and 600 artillery pieces, which dwarfed the numbers of Finnish defenders. But before the Red Army could come to grips with the Mannerheim line, they first had to advance through a buffer zone between the border and the line, which varied in depth between 12 and 30 miles. While there were no major fixed defenses in this zone, it was still considered an important part of the overall defense of the Isthmus, with the goal being to slow the Soviet advance to give additional preparation time. To this end, there were about 21,000 men organized into Finnish covering groups with the goal of launching some nighttime counterattacks against the forward Red Army units. These counterattacks would cause some casualties, but almost more importantly, they would sow confusion. After their counterattacks, the the Finns would then retreat, destroying bridges and railroad tracks in the process. They would also set up some booby traps, with the most important feature of these traps being to slow the advance because of the fear of the traps, but was often more impactful than the traps themselves. Here is William Trotter from A Frozen Hell, The Russo-Finnish War, 1939-1940, describing one of the ways that this was impactful on the Soviet advance. Quote, 
Under the newly frozen lakes, mines were strung on pull ropes, only partly filled with explosives so that they would retain buoyancy for several days. The charges were not designed to blow up the tanks, but rather to shatter the ice beneath them. When word got around about this tactic, the Russian tank drivers began to avoid the lakes altogether, which is precisely what the Finns wanted, since it was much easier to ambush the vehicles in the countryside than out on the lakes, where their guns could sweep the terrain all around. End quote. Forcing tanks or men to stick to the roads was also impactful because even under the best of circumstances, there were going to be Soviet traffic jams. There were just too many men and too many vehicles that needed to move down too few roads, a problem that would plague many armies over the next six years of the Second World War. These massive traffic jams resulted in multiple days of delay, especially for the artillery, which were often further back in line. It also just generally slowed the advance, and over the course of the Soviet advance through the buffer zone, a rhythm would develop, whereby the Soviets would very slowly and cautiously advance during the day, clearing out Finnish resistance as they went. Then, before night fell, they would retreat a few kilometers to set up their defenses. During the night, the Finns would move forward to reoccupy as much ground as possible, then the next day, the cycle would repeat. There was no way that the Finnish screening troops could ever stop the Soviet advance. There were just too many men, too many tanks, too much artillery. But the fear among the Soviet soldiers of being ambushed in an exposed position slowed the overall advance to a crawl. During this slow advance to the Mannerheim line, the Finns would also begin to come to grips with one of their greatest challenges during the war, what to do about Soviet tanks. The Finnish forces had very few and often no modern anti-tank guns, and so they had to get inventive and creative about how to deal with Soviet tanks. This started with simply getting used to them being present on the battlefield. In the first days of the Soviet attacks, the Finnish forces were often shocked and justifiably very frightened by the Soviet armor. But even just a few days after the start of the war on December 4th, many units were beginning to find ways to counter the threat. There were two major ways that would be developed to disable Soviet tanks, destroying their ability to move and then just burning them out. The first method was the simplest. Get close enough to the tank to jam something in its tracks and wheels to disable them. It was as simple as a log or a crowbar. This would result in dislodging the treads from their running wheels and therefore immobilizing the tank. Another very powerful anti-tank tool was the Molotov cocktail, which for the Finns involved using a mixture of gasoline, kerosene, tar, and chloride of potassium. These weapons were able to disable tanks, but they were also very deadly to use, mostly due to how close a soldier had to be to the tank to use them, and this resulted in very heavy casualty rates among anti-tank squads, upwards of 75%. But there were always volunteers, and during the fighting retreat to the Mannerheim line, they would disable about 80 tanks. Now, most of the fighting within the buffer zone would be over by December 6th. By that time, all of the forces in the zone had been pushed back to the Mannerheim line and had been incorporated into the defense. They were also able to bring their experience and knowledge back to the other defenders and their stories of success and the methods that they used to achieve that success, all of which were invaluable for the fighting that was to come. After the Red Army troops had pushed through the buffer zone, they would make their first major effort against the Mannerheim line on its northern end. This was not the most likely area to attack, which was against Suma in the south, but Meritskov hoped that by attacking first in the north, 
he could force the Finns to move reinforcements north, which would make them more vulnerable to Soviet attacks in the south a few days later. Mannerheim and the Finnish leaders did expect a Soviet attack in the south, but when the fighting started on the northern end of the line, they were determined not to fall into the Soviet trap of moving troops away from the pivotal areas around Suma. Fortunately for the Finnish defenders, in the area where the Red Army was about to attack, the defenders had the advantage, both when it came to elevation and the type of ground, with the defenders having at least some solid ground to build defenses on, because most of the land in the northern sectors of the Mannerheim line had a water table that was very close to the surface, which meant that deep trenches and fortifications were simply not going to happen. The geography of this region, though, meant that it was impossible to build the kind of defenses that would be seen around Suma, and for the majority of the front around the Soviet target of Taipali, the Finnish 10th Division, which would be defending this sector for the entire war, was mostly defending with some shallow trenches with some strong points here and there, nothing like the big bunkers that you see in the south. The Soviet attack on December 6th would be prefaced by an artillery barrage which would last four hours, after which the Soviet troops would surge forward. One of the units taking part was the 19th Rifle Regiment, which had to attack across the Topoli River to get to their objective. Here is Sergeant Major Chikov on a, with a first-hand account of this attack. Quote, The assault began. Our men ran into the field towards the river, and Finnish artillery immediately hit them with shrapnel. Everyone was pinned down. I was next to the trench at that moment. We rushed to the river along the trench. We reached the bank and saw the bodies of our dead sappers laying in heaps and no crossing ready. The bank was steep, so we dived down to the river. There were several rowboats below. Move, fellows, move! We jumped into the boats and rowed like crazy. Although what we could do on the other bank, each of us had 15 rifle rounds and one F-1 hand grenade. Not much of a soldier. 32 of us made it to the other bank, end quote. That soldier's experiences were not greatly different than what was experienced along the entire attack, with little real headway made against the Finnish defenses, although fighting would continue over the following days, although these were mostly just skirmishes designed to explore and test the defenders after the failures of the first day, rather than really trying to, to push them out of their defenses. That next major effort would be reserved for December 14th, when the Soviets would begin their largest bombardment yet before dawn, with the artillery fire continuing all the way until 11.30 a.m. When the firing stopped, the Soviet attack moved forward, this time accompanied by over 50 tanks. As they slowly moved forward, when they reached a pre-planned zone, the Finnish artillery began firing. The bombardment was a surprise to the Soviet attackers, and over the next several minutes it would continue, as the Finnish gunners dropped both high-explosive and shrapnel rounds right into the middle of the Soviet attack. This was an economical way to structure the artillery bombardment, but it relied on the Soviets to play their part by advancing in large groups right into a pre-planned, pre-registered kill zone, which, in this case, they would do. The attack would be halted by the Finnish artillery fire, with over 400 Soviet casualties and 18 disabled tanks. While this was a success, it was also a success that could not be maintained mostly due to Soviet numbers. After the failure on the 14th, more Soviet troops, another entire division, as well as all of its art divisional artillery strength, was brought into the attack against Tapali. They would continue launching attacks over the following days, 
but they would continue to be costly failures, not that much different than the first on December 14th. The Russians would fire their artillery against the defenses during these attacks, they would then attack in large groups, the Finnish artillery would answer when they reached a certain point. There were attacks that would last under an hour, achieve nothing, and result in a thousand dead and 20-plus destroyed tanks just in one attack. One soldier of the 150th Rifle Division, Tarasov, would write, quote, Father, we await death at every moment. Two times we were under very heavy artillery fire. Many of my comrades were killed or wounded. There were days when 600 and 700 men were killed and wounded. Trucks were evacuating the wounded day and night. But now the artillery has been firing for 16 days. But nothing helps to drive the Finns out of there. Many men were killed here, many wounded also by friendly fire. End quote. While they were doing well to hold back the Soviet attacks, this period was also not a good time for the Finnish soldiers in the Topoli area. One Finnish soldier, Vestery Lepisto, would later write about this period of the fighting that, quote, Our groups were made up of seven or eight men. The pressure from lack of sleep and rest was so general that the only thought was to get out, do our jobs, and get back as soon as possible. There was always a lack of ammunition. Our hand grenades, produced in seven different countries, were really hazardous. Our lives were at stake every time we used them. Our most aggravating work was getting out there to in 40 below zero, right in front of the enemy lines to set up barbed wire barricades. We had to work without gloves, and we dared not make any noise. Everything was done at night. I was always hungry. We couldn't eat snow because it was contaminated by grenade explosions and would cause painful stomach problems. End quote. But Lepisto and his fellow Finns were able to hold out long enough, even though the odds were increasing against them. One Finnish estimate of the artillery strength in this sector of the front put the number of Soviet artillery batteries at 111 to just 9 Finnish batteries. But as I said, they were able to beat the odds for long enough, at least in this initial effort. Because after the attacks of the second week of December, the Soviet focus shifted down to the southern end of the Mannerheim Line near Suma. The southern areas of the Mannerheim Line were destined to be the point where the Winter War would be won or lost, largely thanks to geography. It was in this area that the Leningrad to Vilpuri railways ran, and it was the one area where there was a corridor that was easily traversed by a large military force. The problem for the Soviets was that this area was less than 20 kilometers in width, which wasn't a lot of space to work with. This had also been the area where the Finns had dedicated most of their resources and effort. It was here that the first defenses of what would come to be called the Mannerheim Line had been constructed in 1919. These defenses were, at least at the start of the fighting, manned by the Finnish 5th Division, who was arrayed in the defenses in front of the village of Suma. The first major Soviet attack towards Suma would begin at 10 a.m. on December 17th, with a five-hour artillery barrage and bombing sorties by about 200 bomber aircraft. The two primary axes of this first attack was directly against Suma, and then along the Alade Road to the north. The main ground troops were two armored brigades, along with some additional armor units, and then over 800 tactical support aircraft, along with ground troops to support the tanks. On the Lade Road, the Soviets had prepared large demolition charges to destroy the barbed wire and anti-tank defenses that the Finns had erected. 
and after these charges were blown, a unit of 50 Soviet tanks launched their attack. The Finnish plan against such attacks was twofold. The first was simply to stick it out as long as possible. The hope was that this would cause the Soviet tanks to become detached from their infantry support, with the infantry stuck fighting the Finnish defenders while the tanks continued forward. Then, once the tanks were isolated, they could be dealt with in various ways, or at least be forced to retreat. The second part of the plan, well, you had to deal with the tanks, which would be hit by the same types of attacks that had been used during the retreat to the buffer zone, either disabling tracks or Molotov cocktails. A new tactic was also used in this area, which involved the use of large anti-tank rocks that had been put in place over the preceding decades. As discussed last episode, these rocks were not actually capable of preventing the movement of Soviet tanks, who had upgraded their suspensions in ways that made it so they could sort of traverse these, these rocks that had been put in place. But what it did allow was for a brief window when the tanks would climb the rocks, which left them vulnerable and unable to fire forward. In that brief window, Finnish troops would run forward, put anti-tank mines on the exact spots where the tracks were about to fall, sort of when it crested the, the top of, of the rocks, and then the Finnish troops would at least try to run away. Just like every other anti-tank tactics, this was very dangerous, but it also did work. In the first series of attacks in and around Suma, 35 tanks would be destroyed, roughly a third of the total number of Soviet tanks that took part in the attack. But this did not in any way mean that tanks were not a serious threat. One Finnish lieutenant would revisit this area of the front after the war and would write, quote, Black concrete bunkers stood in sparse forests without any communication cables or trenches. They were an intolerable place to be in combat. One had to always be ready to bail out immediately. Despite their high cost, they were hopeless rat holes, and I'm wondering why the enemy did not fry them all. If these bunkers were equipped with anti-tank weapons, one could defend oneself against tanks. In reality, all we could do was sit inside the bunker and wait for a tank to drive up and do what he pleased. End quote. After the first attacks on December 17th, almost every day for the next several days, fresh Soviet efforts would be launched. On December 18th, Laude would be the focus of an attack involving 68 tanks, several of which were destroyed by Finnish artillery well forward of the defensive line, while 15 more were destroyed by the infantry. On the 19th, another Soviet attack in the same area saw the large Poppius bunker surrounded and the Finnish defenders forced to defend themselves for 48 hours without any support. After two days of fighting with nothing but grenades and rifles, they were relieved by a Finnish counterattack. While they were holding out to the south in the Suma sector, further attacks continued, although they were met by similarly determined Finnish defenses. After December 20th, the fighting would begin to die down, by which point 58 Soviet tanks had been destroyed just in the areas in front of Suma. The Red Army had thrown seven infantry divisions against the Mannerheim line from Tapali and Suma, along with hundreds of tanks, and they had captured very little territory, and had completely failed to push the Finns out of their defenses. It was a very rough time to be a Red Army soldier, with one letter found on a body in the Suma sector saying, quote, We march already two days without food, in the severe cold, and have many sick and wounded. Our commanders must have difficulty justifying our being here. 
We are black like chimney sweeps from dirt and completely tired out. The soldiers are, again, full of lice. Health is bad. Many soldiers have pneumonia. They promise that the combat will be over by Stalin's birthday, the 21st of December, but who will believe it? While the Red Army was experiencing some challenges in their attacks against the Finnish military, they were also pushing forward with their political plans for Finland. It would begin after the small village of Terayoki was captured on the shores of the Gulf of Finland, with this small village destined to be the symbolic capital of the new People's Revolutionary Government of the Finnish Democratic Republic. This new republic was declared on December 1st with Otto Vilkusen at its head, with various government agencies led by members of the Finnish Communist Party. The initial plan was to have Arvo Tuominen, head of the Finnish Communist Party, act as prime minister of this new government, but he was hesitant to join the government initially, particularly after it was clear that the Red Army was not going to be able to just march through Finland and achieve a quick victory. But there were enough Finnish communists who did want to join the government for a cabinet to be created. One of the new government's first acts was to sign a treaty of mutual assistance with the Soviet Union, along with an official government newspaper, which was founded, and an army. This army, the first Finnish corps, was basically just a Red Army unit with some officers who were of Finnish descent and then some Finnish communist volunteers. And then its ranks were kind of filled out with NKVD units for the most part. The corps was symbolic only though, and would not actually participate in any fighting during the Winter War, although it did occupy areas behind the front line. The creation of this government was announced by radio on December 1st, and it would continue to exist for the duration of the Winter War, even though it would not have any future after that occurred. This new government was important, though, because it made very clear what the Soviet Union's plans were. They weren't just attacking Finland to capture a bit of territory and then negotiate a peace. You know, they were invading Finland to completely replace the government and to take over Finland through this puppet government. The stakes were really high and the fighting would continue for many more weeks. 